The Energy Gang is brought to you by Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, the premier legal services provider to technology, life sciences and clean energy enterprises. Wilson Sonsini has built a leading energy and climate solutions practice and its team is dedicated to a single goal, advancing what's next in the energy industry. Wilson Sonsini is the firm of choice for companies, investors and lenders worldwide. They work with innovative early-stage companies on transactions and agreements and represent clients in large-scale energy project financings and market-opening regulations. For more information about Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team, visit wsgr.com. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. And it's a great pleasure to welcome back Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. Doing well. It's uh, kind of raining outside, but this Texas girl's heart loves the rain, so I'm not saying anything <laughs> bad about it. Indeed. Indeed. Always welcome when you can get it. Yeah. And also today we have an old friend back again, Amy Dufour, who's a co-founder and general partner at Azola Ventures, which is a climate-focused venture capital firm. Hi, Amy. How are you? Great to have you back on The Energy Gang. Ed, it's great to be here. I am not a Texas girl. I'm a Pennsylvania girl, so I don't love the rain right now, Melissa, but <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us. So, a lot to talk about on this show. The first thing I wanted to start off with is a bit of a discussion about Earth Day, or kind of jumping off from something I noticed on Earth Day, which was Earth Day a couple of weeks ago now, April the 22nd. And there was an interesting thing going on in Atlantic City, New Jersey, so not far from where some of us are now in New York. There were adverts up calling for people to save the whales. So fine, very sort of predictable thing you might think on Earth Day. Nothing very surprising about that. But what was unusual about it was that it was organized by the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow and the Heartland Institute, which are two conservative groups on their really not generally known as kind of bleeding heart environmentalists, tree huggers, anything like that. And the reason they were speaking out to defend the whales was because they were linking whale deaths off the northeast coast of the US, particularly off the coast of New Jersey, to the development of the area for offshore wind. The banner was something like windmills kill whales, and they're calling for urgent inquiries and a suspension of activities for offshore wind development because of this recent surge in whale deaths, whale strandings along the beaches of New Jersey. There are definitely some issues with the connections that people are trying to draw between whales and wind, and perhaps we'll come onto that in a moment. But the general principle is clearly very important, something we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast, which is the conflicts that can arise between making progress towards net zero emissions, something that's obviously very much advanced by investing in offshore wind, developing large amounts of offshore wind generation, and the impact on local communities and ecosystems. And clearly, whatever the specific issues are about wind and whales, there are some very important general points here. So that's what I want to start off talking about today. Now, Amy, just to pick up on the specifics of this issue, what do you know about wind and whales? I am not a whale expert, uh, but I have been following this. So as you mentioned, a lot of people have noted that there's been uptick in dead whales that have been floating on the East Coast. And I think the key is there's been a ton of debate as to what's causing the increase in those whale deaths. And 
In the past, whale deaths have really been linked to vessel strikes. So the whale could have been struck by a vessel in the water or entanglement issues linked to fishing gear and other things that could be in the ocean or trauma related to noise or sound exposure, usually produced by humans. And so some of the groups that you've mentioned have asserted that those construction of wind turbines are going to have tons of ships traveling at high speeds. They're going to be crisscrossing through different whale habitats, and that could increase the chances of these mammals being struck. And then outside of that, the noise produced from building the farms could also affect marine life. And so one of the things that I think is pretty interesting about this, because as you mentioned, this tension between community and coastal ecosystems alongside the speed for net zero is is a real issue. But some of the links between this particular issue with regards to whales and wind, I think it's being a little bit turned on its head. So for example, when you think about the whales that have been entangled in fishing gear or that whales and other marine animals are eating a ton of microplastics, it's that the fossil fuel industry is actually, in some ways, is what's contributing to this mess. And outside of that, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Fisheries said that to date, no whale mortality has been attributed to offshore wind activity and that there's no evidence to support some of the speculation that's been out there relating to noise and other pieces. And so I don't want this to become a convenient narrative that just because there's you know renewable energy around that, that's what's causing whale deaths without conclusive evidence. Right. Because to be clear, it is absolutely the case that it's very well established that human activity can affect whales, right? I mean, there's been a lot of studies in particular of naval operations and the way they can affect whales and the use of these very powerful sonars that ships use to detect submarines and so on, that can absolutely interfere, obviously, Sound is very important for whales. It's, it's how they navigate, how they communicate, possibly. And sonar, powerful sonar in particular, can disrupt that, possibly cause physical damage, certainly make whales kind of confused and disoriented, so they're more likely to get stranded, they're more vulnerable to predators. And there's a whole thing for decades now. The US Navy, other navies around the world have been kind of restricting their operations and their use of sonar when they know that whales are in the area in order to protect them and stop um, causing these kind of ill effects. So it's not presumably completely out of the bounds of possibility there could be a link. It's just, as you say, we haven't actually found what the link is yet between offshore wind and whales. I think that's a really, really fair assertion. And, you know, also aside, aside from that, there's also a climate change reason linked to more of these whales and possibly whale deaths. I mean, because our oceans are warming, a lot of these marine um, species are having to move to different areas where conditions are kind of more amenable. And that can mean based on where kind of other fish species are moving, that some of these whales have to come closer to the shore. And so if they're going to come closer to the shore, then they're probably going to have more of an impact with humans. And so it's a little bit of like a circular problem in a way. Uh, which I don't always think is being acknowledged in some of those discussions. So, Melissa, what do you think about this? How do you think about how we should address these kind of risks? And as I say, uncertainties, because we 
can't absolutely rule out a connection, but we don't see one at the moment. I think we do a, a number of different things, right? So when we're actually studying this, uh, to Amy's point, you know, we study it holistically. We look at all the potential impacts and we figure out which impacts are playing a role and in what ways. And it's one of those things where I think overall, if you look at the numbers along the New York, New Jersey, you know, shoreline, they saw it was nine whales between early December and like mid-February washed up. That was, it's a lot of different terms have been used for it. I think at least concerning is definitely one that could be used. Like, huh, why is this happening? This isn't normal. This isn't what we maybe have come to expect in the past. So what is causing it? Figuring that out and not getting too, you know, I guess quick to rush to a conclusion. It could be boats. It could be changes in the climate conditions. It could be combinations thereof. But if we want to actually solve the problem, which is the goal, right? The goal is to solve the problem. Then we need to understand what's actually causing the issue instead of just treating the symptoms. So we should mitigate as much as we can while we understand what the challenges are and what's really causing this. And so, you know, when it's good that we're observing these things. It's actually giving me some flashbacks to like early onshore wind days in Texas. And we saw it harming bird populations. I know this has been a big area of concern when it comes to onshore. It's like, let's not put onshore wind in the middle of a migratory pathway for a bird that is either endangered at risk or just in generally in the middle of a, a bird migration pathway. That is not a good place to put that wind turbine. And we have other options. A couple of different thoughts that I'll just say, Ed, before I hand the mic back is just that Every single one of these technologies have trade-offs. We're understanding the trade-offs of these technologies more as we deploy them more. And offshore wind, while we have studied it, we haven't actually in the United States implemented it a lot. Other countries have. In Europe, they've put a lot of offshore wind out there. But even if you add up every offshore wind turbine that's out there, we're still in the early stages of deploying this technology and we're going to learn. And so this is a period of time where we're learning around that. But to say that the technologies don't have trade-offs, I mean, of course they do. In this case, whales are being affected. One thing I would say is as we study this and continue to study it, we should look at all the different impacts that this stuff is having as we deploy it at scale so that we can mitigate and do better over time. And also, I mean, the other thing it's important to say, I think, about this is that in a lot of places, the timings just don't stack up, that there was an increase in humpback whale mortality, for instance, that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was noticing. That started back in 2017, when all these offshore wind projects were really just theoretical things on somebody's computer, long before there was any kind of large-scale wind development. Even now, there's actually not a lot of construction going on. It's surveying, people are using sonar to kind of map the seabed and so on to work out where they're going to be putting the turbines. But the idea that, for instance, people have said, well, maybe the pile driving for the monopoles that the turbines stand on, maybe that's something that, again, is going to hurt whales, interfere with their hearing, disorientate them, whatever it might be. That's not going on at the moment. So, again, drawing that kind of connection between offshore wind development and whale deaths seems like quite a stretch. Well, and this is why I read these, you know, headlines and I read these op-eds and I read these pieces and I read them and I think about what they're saying and I appreciate, you know, people putting their concerns out there. What I want to know next, like I want to see a holistic study where we actually look at what is causing it. One of the worst case scenarios to me is that we spend a ton of time and effort doing something that doesn't actually help the problem. And I'm not saying it would or wouldn't to change any of these different individual pieces. What I'm saying is I don't, at least from everything I've read, I don't think we know conclusively what is actually causing it. And so if we want to make sure that we don't continue to see, you know, large numbers of this animal coming on shore, we need to figure out what's actually causing it so we can solve that issue. 
One thing I will say that I do believe is playing out in a lot of these conversations is something we've talked about here on the gang a couple of times before, which is this tension between, hey, I've spent my career protecting this animal or this site, and actually climate change is happening. We need to build a lot of infrastructure. Okay, my entire career has been about blocking different projects, but actually there's tension now in terms of protecting, to Amy's point, the species that I care about, the ecosystem that I care about in all of its different forms and all of its different components. And I can't protect it from climate change if we don't build out infrastructure to actually produce the energy that we use every day in a more clean and sustainable way. And that's tough. It's really tough with the urgency of what's going on right now when it comes to the changing climate. And this is something that sooner rather than later, really, really quickly, we're going to get our hands around. But to be clear, I think we need to actually study this and understand the impacts we're having. And we should continuously study it so that we can just get better over time. We're always learning more and we're always improving our processes and that should never stop. But we shouldn't, for instance, as some people have been suggesting, suspend all development, not let any activity make progress until all this research has been finalized and we exactly have got to the bottom of what's going on. I broadly agree with that in the sense that if we have studies and if we've done the research and the work and it demonstrate that something is unequivocally harmful to this marine population or this coastal community, then I think the next steps are really it's the work of the local actors, whether it's local or state governments or other community actors to figure out what's the right approach moving forward to help mitigate some of those negative externalities. I think we're at the point right now where we don't know. And then once we do know, and I think to Melissa, to your point of actually doing the research, having the studies that are out there, so we're not making false linkages, which can be really damaging. So Amy, how do you think about then these issues? So as Melissa was just saying, if we're going to build a low carbon energy system, we're going to build a low carbon economy, that means we need to build a lot of stuff. And that's where you get into these kind of conflicts with local communities, ecosystems, other environmental issues get raised. How do you think about kind of resolving these kind of conflicts? Like Melissa said, it's really hard. And Azola Ventures, the fund I work for, we primarily invest in early stage climate technology. So offshore wind isn't usually our jam, but some of the other technologies in the energy transition, which have been getting a lot of attention are. So when I think about you know carbon capture, which is an area where there's been a lot of conflict, frankly, between community interests and some net zero goals, is one that we've thought a lot about. And I'm you know genuinely worried about it. And carbon capture is a pretty broad bucket. So let me focus on direct air capture, is that there's been a number of different environmental groups in opposition to this. And one of the things that was interesting for me was that I was at this climate justice conference in New Orleans a few weeks ago. It was mostly activists and foundations, on-the-ground nonprofits. We were one of the few venture funds that were there. And during that conference, we ended up visiting Cancer Cancer Alley, which is a stretch of over 200 petrochemical refineries. And when you started talking about carbon capture, people got very agitated. And oftentimes, the carbon capture that they were referring to is point source capture, But often it extended to direct air capture. And so I just want to highlight a couple of different points that people mentioned, which really struck with me. They were saying that all of this will to speed up permitting and siting for these projects, that a lot of the local and state governments that were signing it off didn't actually consult with the communities that were living there. To them, they said, look, even if it's direct air capture in our communities, it's not completely proven. And what we don't understand is that why we are the guinea pigs. That And if you want to build things in the name of an energy transition 
and you want to do it quickly with these sort of extra fast processes and we're questioning it, you're upset about that. And how are we making sure that we're creating a green industry that isn't as extractive as the fossil fuel industries that came before it? I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. And I know I'm, I'm going on for a bit. Maybe the last thing I'll say about it, this is just to illustrate that it is a really complex, nuanced position. It really just made me realize that a lot of the times when we're thinking about bringing in some of these community interest voices and pieces, it happens later on in the process. So like when you're finally you know, going to deploy or you're building that first plant or project. And I think for us as early stage investors, we've started to think about how we can include those voices earlier on. And we're not experts, like we're still very early on in our journey, because I think it's important to balance those community concerns with the need for speed because the urgency of the climate crisis is urgent. And I'll just say I uh, I get my alerts in the mornings of all the things in the news. And uh, the Washington Post let me know that, is it today, that Manchin's going to be revealing his new permitting reform proposal bill, you know, and talking about speed. This is a really interesting one. I was reading through the high level, you know, bullets. Some are similar to what you might expect from previous proposals, but it really is drawing into that tension, like how long do we actually give in terms of time limits for reviews of major projects under NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act? Like, what does that look like? How do we make sure we have the resources to do that? Like, the need for speed, which I'm pretty sure comes from a movie. <laughs> what movie am I thinking about when I it's say top, the need top for gun. speed? Oh, I, I feel the, the need for speed. The movie? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I can now picture it, the need for speed. <laughs> um, I, but I swear I wasn't planning that as I said that. But when we talk through permitting, and really truly though, the need for speed in that process, but not to, again, neglect thoroughness. And so to me, that's about having capacity to process things. You need people and experts and eyes on things. And you also need to have someone owning it. So someone actually is holding the baton in the marathon or whatever and saying, yep, I got it. I'm going to move it forward. So it's really it's really a timely conversation. I mean, I do think though, Amy, what you were just saying about a carbon capture in particular is a really fascinating example, right? Where, and what you're talking about in, in New Orleans and Louisiana, absolutely not the only example of that opposition coming forward. I've seen uh, opposition to carbon dioxide pipelines starting to emerge in the Midwest as well. It's definitely becoming an increasingly significant issue. My own personal feeling is I would not be that worried about carbon dioxide. You know, I breathe in a little bit of it. You know, every time I breathe, I breathe it out all the time. It's something which is pretty well understood. Obviously, if you have too much of it in the atmosphere you're breathing, then you die. And that's a genuine risk. And people have died that way. And so I'm not trying to kind of totally dismiss everyone's concern about it. But I do wonder if a lot of the concern that people have is simply with the novelty of it. It's new technology just starting to emerge. It's things that perhaps people don't fully understand. In fact, possibly there's plenty of other technologies that people are much more familiar with, which are actually much more dangerous and people would be more concerned about if they really understood what was going on. And so, you know, I wonder if that creates, you know, an interesting kind of new set of issues. Again, to just to this general point about we need to build a lot of new stuff, put the emphasis on the word new there. We need to build things that are unfamiliar to people. A lot of this, though, is a reflection of a lack of trust in the system. And honestly, reading history and kind of what has happened with past projects, like that lack of trust is not unwarranted. And so when we talk about what happens next, there's a couple of different things. So you've got that lack of trust. And then you've also got the conversation about how do we mitigate negatives but then also, where are the opportunities coming in? So even if you take out the negative environmental and health impacts, the idea of, oh, this thing's going to bring a ton of jobs, 
and then it does that are given to people who aren't from your community <laughs> and that, you know, it doesn't actually benefit the local community as much as it was supposed to. So I think it's way more complicated than people understanding the technology, even if they do. When you go into a conversation with a lack of trust and it's warranted, that lack of trust, that's a tough barrier to move past. But Amy, I'm curious what you're going to say. No, that's, it's great. I agree with so many of your points. I was going to say that climate justice work and community engagement is really trust building work. And I think that takes time and it's a completely different mindset than the typical like move fast and break things model, which has honestly been you know synonymous with the industry that I work in. When you talked about the jobs piece, that was another fascinating thing that came out of this conference that I was at was that a lot of the jobs that are promised in the areas, for example, say it's in a low income community, there will be restrictions on if you have you know, a criminal record. And so if you have a criminal record and maybe that's X percent of people in the community, you can't apply for that job. So then they have to go look elsewhere. And so this promise of economic development that is aligning with some of these new technologies doesn't completely become fulfilled point that I was going to make before you brought up those great points, Melissa, was also around the issue of, I think, power and where you are building new things, Ed, to your earlier point, which is that, you know, I think many people or many of the people that I spoke with talked about, look, you're not bringing this stuff to wealthy areas because they've got the power and the political will to oppose it. So even if we go back to the offshore wind example, it being opposed by a lot of wealthy owners of you know beachfront properties, this whole NIMBYism movement. I think people also see the injustice in that dynamic. And then that also propels the no, the kind of staunch, you know, we don't want this in our, our area because why are these people allowed to make the same argument, but they're able to get away with it? Yeah, that's a great point. And as you say, that was really striking in, uh, in the offshore wind example that opposition by rich people who didn't want to look at wind turbines turned out to be really effective and they've managed to block it and actually have still to this day slowing and disrupting offshore wind development in parts of the northeast coast of the US. Yes. And as you say, just that thought from people about, well, if they don't want it, why should we want it? It's a powerful argument. Well, and I'll say this is why the overall pathway to net zero is going to look different than any model tells us. So the models give us, you know, great guidelines in terms of the relative balance that you might want for an economically efficient transition for affordable power, kind of great rules of thumb, but the actual implementation at the community level is going to be different. And I'm thinking about things like another thing related to this Wales issue. Um, Ed and Amy, we were chatting about it really briefly before we came on to record, but this whole Pentagon thing raising concerns about offshore wind as well. So, you know, they've had to do activities to mitigate their impact on ocean life. And now they're saying also, hey, offshore wind, you know, we use the oceans for our day-to-day jobs. And so we need to think about that as well. As a military kid, I, you know, acutely aware of this growing up on coasts, it's like, hey, there's big ships that we have to maneuver. And, you know, you can't put up a whole wind farm right in front of where we need to move our ships or where we might need to fly planes at a low level or other things. So it goes back to that inverted, you know, pyramid that we talked about the other week, which is like totally theoretically developable land. And then the stuff that actually will practically get developed is a much, much, much tinier piece of that when you start overlaying all these constraints. But this goes back to so much about if this energy transition is going to happen and it's going to happen on a timescale we care about, we got to figure out how to build stuff and we have to weigh our concerns. And so this is something where a community will have different priorities. That's fine. But it's saying with those priorities, with the resources we have and the priorities you have, what are the potential solutions and pathway forward? So focusing on where does that take us in terms of moving forward? 
I want to move on in a moment, but just before we do, I wanted to try and highlight some good news stories, because I think there are examples we can think of where actually these issues have been resolved successfully. One I just wanted to highlight, Melissa, you were just mentioning this issue of sort of conflict between offshore wind development and military authorities. As you say, it's a huge issue. Wind turbines, particularly the big ones, can really interfere with radar signals and cause big problems for spotting ships and aircraft, can cause big problems for air traffic control, actually, as well as for the military. And if you look at what's gone on in my country, in Britain, actually, there's an enormous amount of work has gone into resolving these issues. Of course, the UK is one of the countries that's been absolutely at the forefront of offshore wind development. They've got a lot of offshore wind built already, and there's more coming all the time. And if you look at what they've been doing, they have actually been working very hard on this, and they've been looking at ways through technological innovation and just the way that you configure your radar sensing and so on, and perhaps you actually put some radar sensors out among the wind turbines and so on. Actually, it turns out there is a lot you can do, and a lot of the concerns that the military have can be alleviated, and you can make radar work even in the presence of these big turbines. So I think that's a great example of where there are fixes that are available if people come together, work cooperatively, understand that there are kind of shared goals here and that we both want to develop a low-carbon energy industry and be able to have planes coming into land at coastal airports. There are things you can do to make that happen. And I also think it's a good example of where sometimes the debate in the United States can be a little bit insular and people aren't prepared enough to look around the world to look at the way that some other countries have been facing exactly these kind of issues and to say well actually it's not the case that there's an inevitable conflict here actually we can find ways to work together to make progress and if you look kind of more broadly around the world there's lots of interesting stuff going on important lessons that can be learned in order to uh, take things forward i'll just give one other quick example which is the competitive renewable energy zone lines in Texas. The original maps, the original pictures, and all the potential pictures about where those lines could lay, well, they lay in different places now. They go generally in the same direction. So these are big power lines, right, essentially running from west to east, right? So going from big areas of open country out in west Texas where you can build wind farms over to the cities, the demand centers in the east. Is that broadly right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole series of them. I'm actually thinking through the original maps and the maps that actually got built out. But yes, basically, it's moving electricity from uh, five different pockets and broadly more western Texas up into the panhandle, but down all the way to the close to the Mexican border into population centers. And the idea was we're going to build these huge transmission lines all within ERCOT. So it makes it simpler you know, less less communities that we're going through, and it's all within that Texas grid, to move wind power into into our cities. So saying, hey, we've got a lot of wind, and we should be using that to make electricity. So let's do that. And, you know, the history of CREZ is interesting in the sense that, um, you know, the state blew past, pun intended, uh, all of its targets time and time again. But you look at the actual line that those big transmission lines follow on the map, and they're not exactly what was written in the first version, the second version, or in some cases, the 10th version. But it was one of those like, hey, this is generally where we're trying to get. We're trying to go towards Sweetwater, Texas, because that area around Sweetwater is great for wind development. That area was very, very open to it. You know, they had experienced the boom and bust cycles and were experiencing population decline and all this other stuff. And they said, hey, this could be really good for our communities. We want wind development here. We'd love to have a line 
but the actual path in, you know, it doesn't go through Fredericksburg, Texas. It doesn't go through some other communities that said, and eh, not here, but their neighbors were like, we'll take it, <laughs> like, we'll do it here. But those were processes of conversation. This wasn't a blanket eminent domain, let's put this thing down. There were actually engaged conversations. There were pushbacks and there were compromises to actually get what got built. And now the wind is on the system and increasingly solar is on the system. Now the lines are so full, they're going, okay, Kres round two, <laughs> like, let's go. So that I think is another example of, it's very methodical. That project did have some things in its favor, like not crossing state lines and staying within the Texas grid, but it was an intentional build out of something that brought clean energy onto the system. That was a really wonderful example of thoughtful and intentional collaboration across a lot of different actors. Yeah, as you say, and great to think about solutions being available. As you say, that's a great example of where you can see that people coming together, cooperating in the right kinds of ways, these conflicts and tensions can be resolved. Wilson Sonsini is the premier provider of legal services to technology-driven enterprises and innovators. The firm represents growing and established companies and advises management teams and boards of directors. The firm is nationally recognized for its work advising clients on sophisticated corporate and technology transactions, counseling on complex governance and operational issues, and assisting with IP-related matters, in addition to representing clients in litigation and regulatory matters. In 2022, Wilson Sr. was named to Fast Company's annual list of the world's most innovative companies. The award acknowledges the firm's role in the new economy as a creative force in advancing new forms of innovation from fintech to sustainability. Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team represents emerging and established clean energy and decarbonisation clients on capitalisation, project development, project finance and market opening regulatory matters. For more information, visit wsgr.com. Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back. It's taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June the 21st and 22nd. You can join leading utilities, solar and energy storage developers and federal policymakers to discuss the big issues facing the industry today. How is the Inflation Reduction Act supercharging the development of solar and storage in North America? How can policy continue to support the growth of solar and storage to advance the energy transition? And what does the industry need to build a thriving domestic supply chain? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage now and for the future. It's going to be a great event and we look forward to seeing you there. So talking about lessons to learn from other parts of the world, I want to move on to talk about something else. And this is something, Melissa, that you were saying you'd been struck by, which is this announcement from Poland about Bosch planning to invest about $280 million in a new plant to manufacture heat pumps. That followed another announcement from Japanese company Daikin just a week earlier that it's also investing about $300 million or so in a big plant to make heat pumps in Poland. There's clearly something going on here, I think. I mean, do you want to talk a bit about this? Why did that catch your eye particularly? So there's a couple of different reasons why it caught my eye. One is, so you all know, I do this other podcast, The Big Switch, um, here at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia. And 
it's, you know, through the different seasons right now, we're developing one that talks about the energy transition and how it's playing out in Europe, right? In particular, focused on Germany and Poland for a large variety of reasons. But the backdrop on it, like we did season one of the show, we, the backdrop was Winter Storm Yuri and the blackouts in Texas that I lived through. You know, many of us lived through, and that was the backdrop there. And for the new season, the backdrop is the energy security and energy crisis going on around the world, but particularly focused on its impacts in Europe. And I was struck by Germany's announcements on their big push to get more heat pumps into homes. And then thinking about, you know, Germany and Poland, very different approaches when it comes to their energy mix. Poland still relies very heavily on coal. We've talked about their announcements about bringing more nuclear builds in. But as I was researching more about, okay, where's the energy system in Poland going? Where's Germany? And then all their neighbors that they're interconnected with, you know, where are all these different countries going? I started seeing so many stories about the incredible economic growth that's gone on in Poland. And then these announcements about these big industrial commitments subsequent to the nuclear announcement in the months after that, okay, we're going to build these big industrial facilities and we're going to build out a bunch of heat pumps. One cool brief story I will bring up as a part of the interviews we're doing for the next season of the show, I got to speak to a heat pump installer who works in Poland. And he was talking about what happened kind of right after Russia invaded Ukraine and the amount of work he had, and then how actually things got paused for a bit because the Polish government was figuring out what they were going to permit in terms of what types of heat pumps to put in people's homes. So back to like non-technical barriers, okay, trade-offs, which ones are going to be okay? What are the building codes? What are the regulations? So we don't install this stuff and then have problems later. They worked that out over a period of few months. And now his company is incredibly busy. They're installing as many heat pumps as they can do, as many as they want to. He's actually kind of reached a saturation point when he doesn't want the company to be that much bigger. He doesn't want to manage more people. He's saying, we do all the business I can handle. And then these announcements are coming out. And I'm like, wow, Poland, fascinating, like really, really fascinating. So I could keep going, but it's just a great topic, I think. Yeah, no, that is fascinating, as you say. And I think really interesting example of that sort of confluence of what I'm sure for Poland is basically energy security policy, right? It's They don't want to be reliant on imported natural gas, very little, if any, natural gas production of their own. They certainly really don't want to be reliant on Russian gas. And so they have to think, what can we do? Where can we replace gas in our energy system? We'll answer space heating, a lot of those jobs, water heating, those things that are done by gas-fired boilers at the moment, we'll get heat pumps instead to do those. Also then has the potential benefit of being an emissions reducing technology as well because if your heat pumps electric ultimately you can get low carbon zero carbon electricity to power the heat pump obviously say perhaps not at the moment in poland if their grid is still heavily dependent on coal but definitely it sets a destination you can get to to be low carbon zero carbon ultimately it does make me think though it's a great little microcosm of that general issue about electrify everything right which is you very often hear that slogan and people say when you think about what does a net zero energy system look like globally we'll answer it's a system based on electricity largely it's electric vehicles it's heat pumps it's electrifying every other technology that can be electrified and then making that electricity zero carbon through renewables nuclear whatever other zero carbon technologies you want to apply it does mean though you need a lot more power. I was looking, just looking up the numbers as we're kind of thinking about this. Wood Mackenzie, we've done some modeling on this. At the moment, give or take, the world has about 8,000 gigawatts of generation capacity. As demand for energy grows around the world and things get increasingly electrified and so on, 
we think that's going to rise by 2050 to about 20,000 gigawatts. So that is whatever, more than doubling. But if you were to imagine a world that is on course to hit the goal of the Paris Agreement of limiting global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade, you need 30,000 gigawatts of generation capacity. And of course, that's capacity terms. So partly it's also because generally renewables tend to run less than fossil fuel power plants. And so you need more capacity to get the same amount of, of generation out of them. But anyway, point being, if you want to get to a net zero economy, you need a colossal amount of electricity generation and kind of much more than it looks like we're on track for at the moment. And that does, given everything we've been saying about difficulties of transforming the energy system and the obstacles and barriers in the path and so on, it raises some really big questions about where we get all that zero carbon electricity from. Amy, your thoughts on that? As you say, when you see everyone going to heat pumps, everyone going to electric vehicles and so on, how concerned does that make you about the pressure that's therefore going to be created on the electricity system? I am excited by the electrify everything movement. And sort of, as you said, we're already on that pathway, particularly from the electric vehicle records and other things. And I think Melissa talking about as well, the trends in Europe with the announcements of Bosch and Daikon and building sort of these heat pump factories, we're all moving in the right direction. So I am excited about it. There are a number of different challenges though. And I think about those challenges to electrifying everything as things that we need to really think through to ensure that this is as successful, I think, as we hope it to be given what's at stake. So when I think about some of those challenges, the buckets, I think that you pointed to firstly, like, can the grid handle it? I mean, there's going to need to be tons of new emissions-free power and making sure that these EVs and these newly electrified homes don't cause blackouts or strain the system. And so how can we make sure that the grid is reliable and make sure that transmission projects are being built? So, I mean, that's one key piece of it. There's another key piece for me that is related to charging. And Melissa, I know, I feel like you might talk about this later, but this PBS documentary was amazing. I just want to stop you there then, because, sorry, I haven't seen this documentary. Explain this to me. And you were great in it. What is this? (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that, Amy. Honestly, it was one of the funnest projects I think I may have done in my career, definitely in the past year or two. It was a highlight. It'll be on my short list. Yeah, so there's this documentary. It's uh, with PBS Nova, and it is about how we actually mitigate climate change. It's focused on solutions. The idea is we know climate change is already happening, and they actually cover that in the other film they're producing this year about weathering the changes that are already happening right now. It's got Catherine Hayhoe in it, who are familiar with uh, her work and, and how she talks about climate change. The one that I'm in focuses on solutions, and we talk about what it means to electrify everything that makes sense to electrify and how that plays out. And it's got a lot of real-world examples. So Miles O'Brien and Will Tobin, who is a producer on the show, they did a road trip to go look at some offshore wind testing equipment, and they were in the F-150 Lightning, and they had a steep learning curve 
<laughs> on terms of how to get where they were going. Timers charging out, timers not charging stations not being ready, like just a whole host of things that just happened. And this wasn't staged or planned. It was literally like they went on a road trip in an electric truck and this is what they encountered. You know, this is just what happened on their trip as they learned. And I will say, you know, as an EV owner, I am grateful for the software that allows my EV trip to be highly automated. So I just, oh, I'm plugging in here. Great. Let's do that. Because it's, you know, the infrastructure is being built out and developed. The other piece I will say that we talk about in it is how you electrify homes and what it looks like to really retrofit existing buildings. Because in high income countries, most of the buildings that are going to be here in 2050 are already here. Now, it's not true in the developing world. It's not true in huge swaths of the global south. But here in the U.S. and in Western Europe, like the buildings are here. So it's a retrofit conversation largely in addition to a new building codes um, conversation. One thing I was reflecting on quite a bit is in Miles O'Brien, who was the one driving the truck, Amy, that you saw. He's been covering climate change for a long time and the impacts of climate change. And he said in one of the previews in an interview they did with him, the reason he wanted to make this film was because he feels like we have a responsibility to if we're going to talk about how terrible climate change is already and will be if we don't do anything, we then have a responsibility to talk about the options we have to make it better. And so he feels a real personal responsibility for that. And I just, I find that really powerful. And I feel like it articulates what a lot of us feel, but maybe we don't say as eloquently as someone with Miles's experience at communication does. Yeah, that is a great point. I do entirely agree. Amy, I interrupted. We just had to have that footnote just <laughs> explaining that <laughs> reference. But sorry, do go on. You were mid-flow. You were just kind of talking about some of the issues with electrification. Yes. And Melissa, I love actually that you talked about your colleague framing it as opportunities, because I do think that these are challenges, but they can be turned into opportunities. So I stopped on the charging piece because that PBS documentary is amazing. Another challenge too, when you start to think about let's use heat pumps as an example, since we brought that up, is that the contractors that are going to be needed to install those heat pumps are still unfamiliar with them and they're electricians that are in pretty short supply. And so making sure that we have the talent that is appropriately trained, which could be an opportunity, especially when you think about broadening who is included in the you know clean energy workforce, is another area that we'll, we'll need to really address. Another piece as well is when you think about the grids and how they've been traditionally set up to deal with power demand. So generally that's been in the summer when ACs are running on high blast. But if we think about electric heating, we're going to need to figure out how to address those power demand peaks as well in the winter. Um, and so that's another piece that's an opportunity that people can, can start to think through. And the last thing I will say before I will wrap up my point is that another area that we want to make sure that people are being thoughtful about as well is that the kind of transport sector, that there are differences probably between short haul transport, although we've talked about the EV charging challenges, as well as long haul transport. So when you think about heavy duty trucks that have to go thousands of miles, that might be harder to electrify because they need batteries and those batteries are going to take up a bunch of space. Also thinking through what potential innovations could exist in that space because there will be more unique challenges for longer haul transport, whether it's trucking or aviation or insert form of transport. Absolutely. And it's been very interesting. You've probably seen the um, announcement from California. They're wanting to move to zero emission trucks by 2035. Not at all clear to me 
that those zero emissions trucks are going to be available by then. That seems like a very, very demanding timetable, as you say, given the issues with battery weight and so on. For, for light vehicles, it's much easier to see how you're going to get there. For trucks, not so easy. It's not so easy, but we have the technology and something that I know we talked about when it comes to um, how we decarbonize those heavy-duty vehicles, the big ones that move the goods and stuff that we order online. It's got to get to that distribution warehouse somehow, and it's got to get over to you know, whatever store you're buying it from um, somehow. And within that, it will be interesting to watch how the heavy-duty fleet transitions. It seems pretty clear that it poised to be the opposite of how it's transitioned in the past. So I'll explain that for a minute. When we look at like efficiency increases and who was like investing in all the stuff that made a big 18-wheeler like aerodynamic and all that, that was long haul trucks first. You know, for the first 500,000 miles of this truck's life, it's doing these multi-state cross-country, you know, long treks. I really care about that efficiency for the cost of every single, you know, trip I'm taking. And then as that truck got older, it just eventually goes to short trips and then it goes to ports. In the electric truck push, it seems to be going the other way where it's starting at ports where we can charge more easily, all of that, and then going out to longer haul places as time goes on. And what I'll say is when I think about electrification, I'm not worried about the end point. I think eventually we will figure out how to build enough electric capacity, not just to get the billions of people around this world who don't have access to enough electricity, so hundreds of millions that don't have access to any, and then billions that don't have access to enough, then the amount that they'd want for their lives to support healthy and happy and full lives full of opportunity. I think we can build that stuff, but I'm worried about the process of building it. So the end state, I think, is absolutely possible, but the bumps along the road. So as we build out trucks, as we build out cars, we have to make sure the infrastructure is in place and then we have to maintain that infrastructure. And so we're getting good at building charging stations, but we are still relatively terrible <laughs> at maintaining them. My credit card won't swipe or the little you know, automatic pay thing won't happen. The whole system is just not charging for a certain reason, or it's one of those systems where they charge locally on a battery and so you only get two charges and, oh, I, I was the third car, so now I can't charge these types of things. Like We're learning a lot as we go. So I think there's bumps in the road, and the important thing is to make sure those bumps don't slow us down too much, and they also don't leave parts of the population behind. And to understand, as Amy was just saying, that those challenges are also, by the same token, fantastic opportunities. And that's the thing that we're really hoping is that people are going to come forward with the ideas to solve these problems, take on these challenges. And if they do that, there should be large rewards attached to that. Which brings me to the final thing I wanted to talk about on this show, which is the question of venture capital investment for climate mitigation, emissions reduction and there's been this interesting announcement. So, Amy, so your firm, Azala Ventures, was part of this, right? So this is a group called the Venture Climate Alliance, which was launched a couple of weeks back, which has the goal of sort of aligning the venture capital industry with net zero. They're trying to accelerate the transition to net zero emissions, pledging to work with the companies they invest in to set net zero goals by 2050 or earlier and ideally by 2030, I think, in some of the companies they work with. So struck me as interesting, interesting announcement. It's clear that we need people to come forward with good ideas to solve the challenges of the energy transition. It feels also like we've had a lot of announcements from different kind of investment groups, different people involved in the financial services industry in various different ways are all talking about net zero in somewhat different ways. But I, I wanted to 
ask you, Amy, about this particular group. What's the kind of the unique contribution that you're making? What's the point in having this new alliance being formed to be kind of a, this another group pushing towards net zero? I take on your point that there are a lot of alliances and initiatives in the climate space, but I do think this one, which we are a part of at Azola, is going to be particularly powerful. I think it's the first time that venture capital firms, regardless of sector focus, are coming together to say that, look, we collectively need to achieve our net zero goals, and we're going to do it in multiple ways. We're going to address the emissions from our firm operations, and that's by 2030 that you mentioned, Ed. And then we're also going to address the emissions from our portfolio companies and also track these pieces to hold ourselves accountable. I think that's really interesting because at Azola, we're a climate-focused venture firm. And so some of this work that's even part of the Venture Climate Alliance, we've been doing ourselves. But what's really needed, I think, is to ensure that people aren't operating in silos We can't do this alone. And so bringing together venture capital firms, both climate focused and generalist, who are all united in this fight against climate change and are trying to plug into existing networks, whether it is the criteria established by the race to zero convened by the UN climate change high level champions or the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. The point is that we're all doing this together and collaboration is pretty key. And we're trying to be thoughtful about creating a methodology and ways of working both within our firms and across our portfolio companies that will put some real teeth behind this initiative. One of the things that I've seen with other initiatives is sometimes it's just the commitment, right? Like we want to achieve net zero or negative emissions for our operations by date X. So that is one part here. I think the second part is that we're encouraging our companies to set their own targets to achieve net zero by 2050 or sooner. The third piece is that we're not just asking companies to set these targets in addition to setting firm targets ourselves, but we're going to help our portfolio companies with assistance to achieve these net zero transition pathways. And then fourthly, we're going to report out transparently on our progress towards these goals. So I think it's kind of combination of different ways that we're attacking This issue, and again, across both generalist and climate VC firms that have a large amount of AUM collectively, which I think is what's new and frankly, what's different this time. So what's your view of the general state of venture capital investment in climate focused businesses and technologies at the moment? I know I was looking at some data showing that it grew very steeply in 2022. I think the number was it was up. 89% total VC investment in climate-focused investments was up 89% in 2022 on 2021. So that's really very rapid growth. But then there's been quite a lot has happened. We've had obviously tensions in the banking system, rising interest rates, some concerns about the outlook for the economy and so on. How would you sum up the state of the landscape now? Yeah, look, VC more broadly has like, seen a pretty downward trend. I think climate tech VC in particular has been a bright spot. You know, valuations have held pretty steady. And also, I think what's interesting is that the types of verticals that investors are deploying capital into has shifted over time. So back in the day, maybe it was all electric vehicles, but now people are getting more comfortable with carbon capture, 
or energy storage technologies. I mean, nuclear fusion, I feel like has been having a moment over the past year. And then on the flip side of that, traditional categories in the broader climate tech VC landscape that have been doing well, or that I would say kind of earlier investors into the climate VC space had more comfort in, are not doing as well. So one example is ag tech. When we thought about climate tech investing, a lot of people were investing in consumer-focused ag tech companies, frankly, a lot of alt-protein companies. A lot of those companies have been having a pretty hard time. You think about Beyond Meat and Impossible. And so we're now seeing a shift that a ton of venture investors are starting to get a little bit nervous about investing in other alt-protein company because some of the value that people had ascribed to those types of companies are getting a little bit skittish given some of the challenges. I think that there's been another focus as well on, or more of an interest in plastics. So when you think about sort of low carbon chemicals or other low carbon chemical commodities, which I think there's been increasing VC investment, but we are entering a period of economic uncertainty. And when that happens, I believe that businesses that are sort of longer term businesses that are much more capital intensive, and especially if it's a commodity type product where the margins are pretty low and they have to build these huge expensive plants, they might have trouble in the future raising capital because VC investors start to think about, okay, you know, let me figure out my time to exit and X, Y, and Z. And so that there becomes a financing risk, frankly, probably further on downstream, because there might be few financiers who are going to be willing to fund some of these, quote unquote, like riskier endeavors that require more capital. But by and large, the climate tech VC sector has been in a a pretty good state. I just find it personally really fascinating to think about the areas that we played in at Azola Ventures and our predecessor, Prime Impact Fund, that were considered fringe like five years ago, like direct air capture, which now I find tons of DAT companies are pitching us every week. Yeah, that's really interesting because hearing you talk, it made me think, what really is the role for venture capital in the energy transition? And given that quite a lot of energy technologies need a lot of investment in capital upfront, tend to be pretty high cost, things may take a long time to pay off. And also, you need sort of perseverance. And as you say, you talk about the example of alternative proteins, where there's kind of a bit of a fashion kind of thing, right? And and as you say, a lot of capital flowed into that sector a few years back and has now flowed back out again. And energy technologies often by their nature require very patient capital and long-term investment. And when you think about venture capital, I guess you could say that a lot of the really big hits and successes of that form of investment have essentially been in software, where it is possible to do a lot with very limited amount of capital investment and where you can, if you hit big, make very large returns very quickly. Obviously, you see a role for venture capital in climate tech because it's what you do. How do you see your role as opposed to the other potential funders of technological innovation like the bigger companies or like governments or whoever? I think we need all types of financing. I mean, it's one of my bugbear issues with the climate space. It's not that we just need more types of financing, but different types of financing. And it's worth clarifying, even our firm in the VC space actually plays a pretty unique role because we're combining both conventional venture capital with what we call catalytic capital, which is structurally more patient and flexible. So we're able to take on disproportionate risk 
than other venture capital firms may not just structurally be able to. And so, you know, when you think about the different financing options, whether it's grants or catalytic capital, maybe early stage, more conventional venture, first of a kind patient like plants or project financing to growth equity. I mean, I think they're they're all really needed. And I think importantly in the climate spaces, we need all of these different ecosystem actors working together. Think about how much stronger a company that we invest in will be is if they have a corporate partner that's willing to host a pilot project or do a small minority investment to help lend credibility and to give that startup the opportunity to understand what it looks like to work within a larger, complex bureaucratic organization. I think this collaboration piece of different types of financing is really important. And I think venture has a role to play, but it's one piece of many puzzle pieces that are really needed to appropriately capitalize the climate space. And I will just echo that. I think we're talking about moving a lot of money. We're talking about moving a lot of money into a lot of things. And there are spaces within that that are appropriate for different types of financing. There are roles for government, roles for private, roles for all the different parts of the spectrum. And within this, I also will just highlight the fact that when we talk about getting to net zero, like net zero is not an end state and then it's done. It's then maintaining that. And so as we look at like what needs to be deployed to bring emissions down, what needs to be successfully integrated to get us all the way to net zero, and then what do we need to do to keep ourselves there and keep ourselves there in a reliable and affordable way? So it's it's all those pieces of that puzzle. So within any one of these financing arms, any potential I'm picturing rivers of capital flowing right now in my head. Don't ask me why, but you know, the capital needs to flow. It will come from many different sources to actually, you know, create this pool that we need to move all the different pieces together effectively. And so that's going to be work that venture capitalists do. It's also going to be like rate cases for regulated utilities and like how that gets paid for by, you know, people who are paying their power bill. So it's, it's all of those things. Well, I'm afraid we do just about have to wrap it up there. Before we go, though, of course, it's time for, as usual, our free electrons, these personal items that we've brought in. I have one that I think is very interesting, which is related, actually, to the discussion we've just been having. But does anyone who wants to go first? Amy, do you want to go? What's yours? Sure. My free electron is a report that was published by Project Frame. It's an initiative that's led by Climate Nonprofit Prime Coalition to bring investors and climate experts together to build common terminology, methodology, and best practices. And so one of the challenges in the broader climate space, and we talk about accountability, is that we don't have a kind of a standard metric system for thinking about some of these climate impacts. And that's what Frame is trying to do. And so they've released pre-investment impact measurement guidelines on how to think about forward-looking GHG emissions reductions. I thought it was pretty fascinating, touched on a lot of nuances. So if you want to take a look, you can go to projectframe.how. I think that's the website. (laughs) I will definitely check that out. Thanks. Uh, Melissa, what's your free electron? I've got two. I promise I'll be fast though, Ed. (laughs) So the first one Amy touched on, chasing carbon zero. It's huge. It's been a big thing we've been working on for quite a while. And I'm just so excited to be able to now say it's on YouTube. It's on PBS Nova's site. Like it's out there in in the wild. And the, the piece that I will highlight from it, we've talked with Donnell Baird from Block Power before electrification of uh, buildings. But 
I actually was really intrigued both by Donnell's work because he's in the documentary as well, but the work of this uh, chef, Chris Galarza, and he has this company called Forward Dining Solutions. And essentially he was talking through, when you look at Local 197 here in New York and, and other places, the exemptions for commercial kitchens, which are places that people work. And as someone who studies air pollution, the exemption of that from decarbonization, electrification things, that's got a big health impact. And so for those who want to watch the documentary or go and follow Chris, he's on Twitter and he talks about, you know, his real projects where they've made kitchens safer um, and healthier and able to produce more food faster and caramelize things perfectly, which he's he's a very accomplished like executive chef. He's He can cook a mean stir fry <laughs> amongst other things. So that's a really great one. The other one that I'm just going to flag real quick, anytime when four scholars from the center get together and write an op-ed. I'm going to read it. And this one was next level. It's called Green Gridlock, How to Fix the US-EU Disconnect on Climate. And it's in Foreign Affairs. It's by Chris Bataille, Gautam Jain, Noah Kaufman, and Sagatam Saha here at the center. Um, and I think it just digs into some of the things that we've actually been talking about here on the show in different ways, but next level to highlight where the real tensions are or not and how this can all develop in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act, Repower EU, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That does sound really interesting. Yeah, that, that's published now, is it? Well, you can find that online. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to take a look at that too. So mine, unlike yours, unfortunately, is not anything that's been published. So there's no kind of follow-up. But it's just these conversations we've been having, I've been having with colleagues at Wood Mackenzie about this issue, which is the question of AI and energy, which is something a lot of people have been wanting to talk about. And I feel kind of uncomfortable because I don't want to be that guy, you know, that guy who says, this is boring. We've seen it all before. This is someone was saying, if someone who was there at the creation would say, yeah, oh, light. Yeah, I knew about that. But I feel like there's a tremendous amount of buzz around AI, obviously, because of ChatGPT and large language models and what they can do. And a lot of people have been asking the question, what does it mean for energy? To which I've been saying, well, I feel like we've been thinking about that in the energy business for really quite a long time. You think about sort of oil and gas companies using it to kind of assist them when they're looking for oil and gas and their modeling and so on, or in their production operations, trying to optimize production. You think about things like on an increasingly complex grid, how do you manage variable renewables, distributed energy resources across a grid? Those are kind of AI techniques, really, that people are using to make that grid integration possible. And so it feels like the sort of stuff happening and things have been happening all the time, but it's kind of been incremental and gradually things have been creeping in across the energy industry. It doesn't feel like there's a kind of a big bang moment when suddenly everything's going to be different. And I think there was a thing, I don't know if you saw that story that was quite well publicized a day or two ago about doctors talking about, oh, there's this thing where if you get doctors to answer medical questions or chat GPT to answer medical questions, you'll find that the patients are happier with the answers they get from chat GPT. Fantastic. And so you think, well, okay, that's great. Then obviously chat GPT can replace doctors, except that the answers people are getting from chat GPT are not always right. And they, people may like the answers better, but then people are made happier, but they're not actually made healthier. And getting the answer you like is not always the same as getting the right answer. And actually, on the whole, getting the right answer is more important. So, as I say, I end up being AI. That's that's no big deal. Ah, forget about that. Ah, it's boring. We knew that. And obviously, when I'm in that kind of position, I worry that I'm wrong. 
and it makes me think maybe I'm missing something or what's my kind of blind spot here. So I don't know if you're thinking about that. I don't know if any of the listeners right now have been thinking about the ways in which I will absolutely revolutionize the energy industry. And maybe there is something completely different out there somewhere and I just haven't seen it yet. In terms of what I've seen so far, I'm a bit kind of meh about it all. It sounds like a future topic. I, I'm not taking the bait. I want to talk about it right now, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Well, if anyone has uh, views on AI and energy, do keep them coming in and definitely stay tuned because Melissa's right. This is definitely something we're going to have to come back to. Really enjoyed this week's chat. It's been really great being here as the three of us again. It's been a lot of fun. It has indeed. Yeah. Thank you both very much indeed for coming along. Been fantastic talking to you. And many thanks to you, Melissa. And many thanks to you, Amy. It was great to be here. <laughs> many thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Begins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As I was saying, we're very keen to hear your thoughts on AI or anything else. Praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows. Please do keep them coming. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon as at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. We'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.